Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the That Depends podcast. Today we're joined by Tulsi Raj. Tulsi is one of the advocates for an intervener in the contentious Karnataka hijab hearings that are currently ongoing. We get her thoughts on the arguments of the petitioner, um, the government order that led to the entire controversy, and this is also one of the first cases or high-profile constitutional cases that is being live streamed on YouTube. So we get her thoughts on that issue as well. Hi Tulsi, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, before we get started about the arguments of this case, could you just give us a brief background as to how this controversy developed? Um, because we are now in February of 2022, and it started almost two months ago. So, if you could just walk us through what's happened in the last two months. Right. Thanks. Uh, yeah. First of all, thanks a lot for the invitation. It's it's. Always great to talk constitutional law, uh, especially with people who are interested in and uh, thinking about constitutional law. So, uh, of course, the hijab ban uh, started a couple of months ago when the pre-university pre college uh, expressly banned uh, hijab. It was a case where they just said that uh, Muslim students were wearing the hijab uh, simply cannot wear it, and that from there it started. Uh, that was the first instance of um, the hijab ban, and from there, several institutions started gradually uh, emulating this and uh, started telling Muslim students not to not to wear it. And Muslims, Muslim teachers also faced in some institutions certain hostility for wearing the hijab. And that is how the government. That's the context of the government order. The government issued the uh, GO saying um, saying that religious uh, symbols cannot be worn, whichever religious. Uh, symbols or or clothes are which are against public tranquility or public order so the, and and then there were cases filed both by students challenging the the ban in, in respective institutions and cases were filed challenging this this government order the the validity of this government order and saying that the government order should be in fact struck down for uh, a lot of reasons including uh, the right to religion and uh, discrimination grounds so that is the brief uh, brief context um, of the current hearings in the Karnataka High Court. Yeah, and I guess some useful context for people who are not from Karnataka also is that pre-university colleges are basically grade eleven and grade twelve. Am I correct? Yeah. So we're really talking about students who are between the ages of fifteen and eighteen. Um, oh, one more thing, just to like flag it, is that. The government order. So that's what. How I have understood is that the government order basically says all religious symbols that students wear, which is not prescribed in the uniform, should not be allowed. And from that that line, what has happened is that universities or like pre-universities have started banning students wearing hijab. So that's the thing because at one level the GO says that you know only all religious symbols should not be allowed, but the impact it has is only on hijab, and that's why. This whole challenge and this whole high court hearing is based on an angle that this is actually impacting Muslim students, and from there, what the first argument—that's the overarching argument—that has gone, that's been argued in this case—is that wearing a hijab is essential to my religion, and it is what something we call as an essential religion practice. Therefore, it cannot be stopped. So, I think just to discuss firstly, what is this essential religious practice, and why is this being the line of argument that's been taken by the councils? Right. Uh, so before going into EAP, the the reference in the in the government order is of course of headscarves, 
and it quotes certain judgments and says that these judgments have held that head scarves or head veil are not essential part of part of uh, the religion and then it goes on to then say in the operative portion that none of the religious uh, symbols are uh, allowed which which can have a breach on public order so that is the reference with respect to a particular uh, religion that is the, the the hijab or the head, head veil and whichever way you want to call it and that is uh, the, that is why the government order partly is being attacked uh, because it, it it does expressly mention um, the headscarf although not in the operative portion i'd like to jump in here could you just tell us um like based on your experience as a lawyer dealing with administrative issues so the government really didn't need to talk about the headscarf or the cases that allegedly say that banning a headscarf is okay it really didn't need to talk about that right um this was an order um in response to universities who were already banning the headscarf and the government has come out and said um you know we don't think it's illegal right and then they've said that is sort of in the pretext and then the operative point um like you said the operative part of the order says uh no no clothes that violate like equality unity and public order so i was just wondering um is there something that you see often in government orders and why did the government really do that right so if you if you talk about the the reasons on which administrative orders must be must be judicial judicially reviewed and must be set aside by courts there are of course, of course multiplicity of grounds available to challenge this particular order usually in administrative law we know that there are a lot of grounds that we take and that is much wider than uh, how how legislations are even challenged because because you can take grounds such as a non consideration of relevant facts that the 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 order is vague that you cannot make out that you cannot make out what it actually means you can take the ground of non application of mind that the, that the decision maker did not really apply her mind while while issuing the order so you can it can take all these grounds and i think all these grounds are available to the petitioners in this in this particular case and you're right that i, I don't think that they did need to actually talk about the headscarf i think they wanted what the government tried to do with that is that they wanted to bring on some legal sanctity to the order they wanted to say that yes what we are doing has a legal foundation so even if the i mean it it's all guesswork but it looks like what what they want to say say is that even if you implement this particular order with respect to the hijab as many institutions are doing currently that wouldn't be wrong that wouldn't be illegal because all these judgments are there in support and this is how we interpret the judgment so relying on the, on these judgments all the institutions which are banning the hijab would be would be correct in law to do so and that i think simply is the motivation behind putting the uh, inserting those judgments which uh, yeah which are relied on to say that the head veil should be uh, should be banned the judgments were given in a different context also right you can't just say yeah. you know these judgments say so so we are doing so because That's you have to true. understand like maybe the facts would have that case would have been different and in this case the impact is that students are not being allowed to go to classes and that's the that's the key impact the thing that you know because of now because of religion i'm not being allowed to go to my class and that's that's and that's where the whole erp or essential religious practice things comes in i think you would have to explain that sorry right and and in fact the, there is as we know as at least many of us know there is a, 
uh, Kerala High Court judgment by Justice uh, Mohan Mustaq that expressly says that wearing the hijab is an essential part of, of Muslim religion. So that, it is by ignoring that, that, that the whole uh, geo, it, it looks like has been passed or it's not been taken note of or it's been conveniently ignored. So we have a constitutional court's judgment, which has already laid, laid down whether hijab is an essential part of the religion or not, which has been relied on by the petitioners immensely uh, and, and, and obviously so in, in the current proceedings. Now, now coming back to the ERP, we know that the ERP has has a lot of problems. So ERP, as as just to uh, briefly explain what it is, I think most of us are uh, who are following the proceedings and otherwise are aware of what what it means. But the essentiality uh, test basically says that whichever practices are essential or integral to the religion are, are what is protected. Uh, under Article 25, and it, it is these uh, practices and these uh, beliefs which the state cannot really intrude on, the state really cannot intervene, and this is the, the core or the heart of the essentiality test, which was laid down by the by the Supreme Court in the Shirurman case in 1954, and has been followed uh, subsequently uh, in various judgments of the Supreme Court and, and the High Court. And just to clarify, because if you read Article 25, it doesn't say anything about essential religious practice. Right? So this is something that has definitely come from the court that uh, every time the state has tried to regulate a religious practice, the court has gone into, okay, is this practice essential to the religion? And if it is essential, then okay, maybe the state should back off. And if it isn't essential, okay, maybe the state can regulate it. But that's not the framework that Article 25 itself lays down. So could you just tell us like what Article 25 lays down? Right. Article 25, of course, lays down, the, in fact, it's broader than simply right to freedom of religion, I would think, because it guarantees the right to freedom of conscience, which also includes to some extent any uh, belief that's based on conscience, such as the belief of an atheist that there is no God. Or, you know, all those beliefs also come within the ambit. And I think the makers of the constitution deliberately intended uh, to use those words and use those words to give a sort of wider ambit to the right to uh, right to freedom of religion or, or belief as it is. And I agree that I agree that there is, of course, no uh, test of essentiality laid down in, in Articles 25 to 28. It's, of course, a judicial invention and a bad one because because of reasons uh, such as lack of expertise of the courts. To go into religious texts and interpret religious, uh, uh, you know, whatever is said by religious leaders, and and that that itself becomes a very very bad uh, test for understanding what freedom of conscience is under under Article Twenty Five, and moreover, the the essentiality uh, test becomes even more problematic because because it it's a very wide test by looking only at at what this religion uh, actually holds or what the beliefs broadly are. It looks at a lot of things or a lot of elements or aspects are relevant for understanding the essentiality test. It looks at how rigorous the practice is. It looks looks at how widely it's been practiced. It looks at the historical aspects of how, how many years or decades it's been since the religion has been holding on to this belief and all these things which have very little to do with the particular individual who is actually holding the belief or, or uh, practice. So it removes agency almost completely from the test, which, which is antithetical to, as we know, the concept of rights as such. All civil and political rights or rights in general, we always put individuals first. It's Although we talk about communities, we talk about families, we talk about uh, religion, we talk about association, but rights are, you know, after mm -hmm. all, individual centric. And yeah. that individual centricity is what is sought to be removed because of the essentiality test, which I think is, is to a great extent illegitimate and a legitimate discovery of the of the constitutional court in India.
Yeah, I think just to circle back, like what I sometimes think is that so this is what I think out of top of my head. I have not really read to think of this, but what I think usually is that this essential just test maybe at some point has developed over the years to manage or to control the mismanagement of religious institutions. And to, for example, if you start reading judgments, it's like who will be head, who will the finances manage? And slowly this, and now when discussion and when now, when our constitutional discussion is all about individual rights of the individual, then this test, which was actually there for management is being imposed on the individuals. So I think this is also a conflict, right? Because the individual says, this is what you were saying that this agency of mind, that this is important for me, but they say, I said, this, this is not what everybody believes. So then who really decides what is the essential religious is and do courts really decide that? So I think that's one one, if you start thinking about it, it's that one roadblock that you find. But uh, so in this case, for example, then how do you think it's being or like, how is it being argued, actually? What is this essential religious thing that's being argued? So, I mean, you're right on the on the first bit, I think, because even the Shirod Mutt case, uh, to a great extent, was about management of the of the Mutt and administration, financial aspects, and, and all of those. And interestingly enough, even Shirod Mutt case, I think the Supreme Court said that the religion is the best judge to, to decide what the essential practices of the religion are. And it is somewhat ironical that that judgment laid out the, the essentiality test and that and from, from that. And I think, in fact, the judgment said no outsider can, can determine uh, what the essential practices are. And, and it looks like the court has conveniently left out itself from the ambit of an outsider and say yes of course nobody else can but of course we can we can determine and we can assess religious beliefs and say whether they are they are essential or not and i mean the way, now onto the second second limb of the question the, the way the petitioners are arguing the essentiality test is largely based on precedents and of course based on a religious texts like the quran and and they essentially talk about how the test was the test is the is the classic way to determine whether whether a whether a person has the protection of Article Twenty Five or not. And then they take precedence from Shirod Mat onwards. Then there is the Acharya Avdhoda case of ninety four, uh, uh, which also talks about uh, the essentiality test. And they have relied on precedence mostly. To say that, and including cases like the the Jehovah Witness case, which is uh, in which the students wanted to claim a right uh, to not sing the national anthem, all these cases are being very heavily relied on by the petitioners, and and they also rely on religious texts of the Quran, of uh, speeches of religious leaders in Islam to say that how how integral. Uh, how integral the, the wearing of the headwell is for Muslims. So I just wanted to, yeah, I, I, just, I was a little bit curious because this is where I feel like this case got into sort of political hot water um, where when you're arguing for the rights of Muslim women to attend an educational institution, you're quoting um, sections of the Quran that require women to cover up bits of their body. And this is where like everybody, I feel like sort of started having their little uh, like uh, whatever Twitter tirades and, and like online news debate, I mean, whatever TV news debates and stuff like that. And from what you're telling me, it's basically entirely because of this essential religious practice doctrine, which requires the court to determine whether or not, um, whether or not Islam requires women to wear the headscarf, right? Um, 
I'm just uh, I'm gonna like pose a hypothetical to you, and you can ask, tell me like how this would have impacted the case. If if you had to say two sects within Islam, right? Um, one that required the wearing of the headscarf, and one that didn't require the wearing of the headscarf, right? And then the one that required the wearing of the headscarf went to court and said like they're not letting me wear it, right? And now the court can't say essential religious practice because there's this other sect of Islam that doesn't require the headscarf, right? So what we really need is you need to, I, I feel like at some point accept that there is some amount of heterogeneity within a religion. And how do you think like a court would have dealt with a situation like that? So I think that again brings us back to the problem of essentiality test. And I think the, the way that you've laid, laid out uh, how the court would react or how the how sort of two religious sects saying that this is actually essential or someone saying that this is not essential has led the courts completely confused with whenever they interpreted uh, religious uh, religious aspects and, and, and beliefs under Article 25. I remember in one of the cases with respect to the question whether the sacrificing of a cow is essential for, for Bakrid, they were looking at religious doctrines and the aspects and, and uh, parts from the Quran and saying that what it actually requires is sacrifice of an animal therefore sacrifice of a cow as such is not what is what is really told by the religion and hence you know that that doesn't sacrificing a cow on on, on the day of Bakrid might not be might not be as essential as as is claimed by the petitioner so that the supreme court has said and this this is in fact <laughs> this brings us back to the, the whole problem with essentiality that the moment i think even a person or, or a sect from a community from a particular community or religion says that it's that you know, I don't do this, or this does not look essential to me, then the court is immediately diluting the test and saying that, yes, yes, there is someone now who, from your own religion who says he or she does not practice this or does not believe it. And hence, uh, I, I, that itself is sufficient to draw the conclusion that is not essential, which I think is, is erroneous in itself. But but that's, that's what the courts have been doing. The problem is that, for example, if those two sects of Islam did exist, I could still have a really sincere belief that it's really important to my own religious practice to wear the headscarf. Right now, just because somebody else in my religion doesn't feel that strongly about the headscarf does not necessarily mean that the state should have the right to take away my sincere belief. Right? Like this, this is the problem that I've been like figuring out with this case. That I, I was following the proceedings, and at one point, this is the when ERP is being argued, just Justice Dixit ask the petitioner's counsel that are you trying to argue that everything in Quran is essential to the religion and then the petitioner was stuck because he didn't know what to answer because if he answers yes then it's a problem because Quran says a lot of things which might not be susceptible with people not accept it but if he says no then his whole case falls flat so then he he tried to circumvent it through a smart code craft but everybody who was following saw it because I think that's what the problem that we're discussing is that how are we deciding and that's the belief of the person is actually being put on the side and uh, so what so do you think is could there have been any other argument that could have taken in this case or some other way that this case could have been argued which yeah, might I mean, not have lead to these traps yeah yeah i mean uh, on, on essentiality of course as as was uh, put it the problem is precisely that that whether or not my argument or my argument under Article 25 will succeed or not depends on something else which I cannot control. 
it depends on you know historical factors it, it depends on whether other people practice it or not it it should ideally depend on how strongly i am attached to that belief or practice but but it's simply not in in erp and the way the text is conceived it, it's just completely out of my control and i can't do anything about it even though i genuinely bonafidely believe that without this practice my my religion wouldn't exist even if i think that it's so integral and so a close closely associated with my religion that doesn't matter and that is that is of course the problem with, yeah. with and, and just to close out this discussion i think it's important to point out that article 25 like acknowledges this and says that there are limits to this right that i i can't i can't claim that something is my religious practice uh, and i hold a sincere belief and then say do something that uh, that could actually harm other people right or result in my own death and you have all those cases about say consumption of marijuana or like um, the tandava cases where people are doing activities that could disturb other individuals rights could disturb public order uh, and and i think the petitioners quoted some of those cases as well in terms of like if you do like activities such as human sacrifice now you can't say that i have a sincere belief in this human sacrifice and therefore i want to commit human sacrifice so article 25 recognizes the limits on it but it doesn't require that all of the religion needs to believe exactly the same thing about my religion that i do so i think this is something that the constitution seems to have figured out but the court seems to have like unraveled on its own right but i think rishab's question is the more interesting one which is if you had to argue this case slightly differently like how would you choose to go about it i think i think the most straightforward way to go about the case would be to argue on discrimination you could argue because these are government colleges and i think even if it were private colleges you could argue, build up very easily a case on discrimination relying on article article 152 so the, the the classic argument and in fact the the very kind of discrimination that the makers of the constitution intended to and to prevent is precisely this that you are you take a protected uh, characteristic under the constitution under article 15 and then you are discriminating precisely based on that so muslim women are are just being deprived of accessing educational uh, institution or accessing classrooms because they wear the hijab because they they have a sincere a belief because they think that wearing hijab is you know whether essential or not they think they think that it it's part of their uh, freedom of conscience so the most straightforward argument i think to go would be a discrimination claim under articles uh, 14 and 15 and there is also just to push back a little bit on that because today the the ag came and he argued that the government order actually is a little bit innocuous in that it just says that the dresses should not violate unity equality and breach of peace and public order <laughs> yeah so so uh could you say that the order itself like targets targets muslims or targets women right so in terms of innocuousness i think considering the political context i i do not think that it's innocuous uh, at all i think there is a specific intent of of the of the political um of the political right wing to to impose and, and to have a certain kind of Uh, narrative and uh, there are also political reasons as to why why that's being done so i, I do not think that's that's anyway in the sense of the government order and the way way it's come forward and the particular context in which it is being launched and the way in which it's actually being implement, implemented in in various uh, colleges but to talk about the law of course the uh, the government order on its face in the operative portion does say it's all clothes which are in breach of public order or public tranquility 
our, our band and of course college ad administrative authorities would be at liberty to determine whatever uniform they want to prescribe for their institutions. But uh, this is where the, the, the concept of indirect discrimination in fact comes. And even if the, the government order looks neutral, it's, it's uh, uh, neutral on the face of it, it has a worse impact on hijab wearing Muslim girls. Therefore, it, it would be, it would, it, it, in fact, this is the classic case of, of indirect discrimination. And we usually talk about examples of Sikhs wearing the kirpan, like, the, like it happened in, in a Canadian case uh, called Multan, where the courts, court actually discussed whether there could be a practice uh, banning headgear of all religions and how, how far the Sikhs are impacted by this particular practice and actually held that they, they were and that it was a sincere religious belief to, to wear the kirpan. And the the and so so these are the uh, these are the ways in which the the government order could be attacked on the basis of uh, articles fourteen and fifteen, and in terms of uh, what what basis the discrimination takes place, I think we have we have two answers here. There are there is of course discrimination on the basis of religious identity, namely by be, being a Muslim. There is of of course also discrimination on the basis of uh, sex or gender for the fact that they are Muslim girls is, is why they are being discriminated against. So we if we just take a counterfactual. We know that for Muslim men, this problem wouldn't arise because it's not customary customary for Muslim men to wear the hijab to begin with. It's also not a problem for non-Muslim uh, women because non-Muslim women are also not uh, wearing at least the hijab strictly speaking. Therefore, it's an intersection of two identities. It's the intersection of being a Muslim on, on the one hand and being a, a woman on the other. It's when two, two of these identities uh, interject that, uh, that you're actually being a victim of discrimination in this case. And uh, thankfully enough, Indi Indian discrimination law has traveled uh, sufficiently advanced, at least in, in, in 2022, when we talk about, we have the doctrine of uh, intersectional discrimination, which are laid down in the, in the Nautage uh, case and in, in a couple of uh, subsequent cases as, as, as well, where the Apex Court made references to intersectional discrimination. We have the doctrine of uh, indirect discrimination as well, which is laid down by Justice Chandrachud in the in the Colonel Natisha case. We also have a doctrine of manifest arbitrariness, which is laid down in the in the Shaira Banu case by uh, Justice uh, Nariban. So we have all tools. We are not lacking any you know legal tools to actually attack the government order, and the court also, in that way, is not lacking of of any tools in discrimination law to say that the government order is bad for for. <laughs> for but, being managed. Just to clarify, so we said that you said you have the tools to attack the government order, but um, could the government not argue that the order itself, because it just says that okay, the the you, colleges uniforms must be followed, right? It's actually the individual colleges themselves that are um, that are like at fault here. Because, for example, if there was a college that allowed the hijab, right, as part of its uniform, the government order says that that will also continue, right? So, are we looking at um, are we looking at situations where um, we should be like we, more scrutiny should be placed on on the individual college administrators who are passing these orders, or do you think that it's mostly the government that it's that's at fault? So, I, I think it's the sort of interplay of the political context in Karnataka, broadly speaking, which which is uh, which is somewhat intimidating for Muslims, it looks like in, in the present in the present context. So it's that political context interacting with the government order and the way it is framed. 
and it, it, I think it would be somewhat less problematic, I think theoretically, if the garment order did not talk about head veil or, or head scarf at all. Now the garment order does put a context uh, to it. The garment order does say that it looks like you know there is no religious essential religious practice of wearing the head scarf or the head uh, head veil, and that indicates somewhat of an intention to discriminate. And then it says that all all clothes which which breach public tranquility are banned. So I think you could read a lot from the way the garment order is order is structured. But I think only only part of the fault lies with the garment order, of course, and the other part uh, lies with the colleges which are actually going ahead and saying that yes, this the, the wearing of the hijab falls within the ambit of you know clothes which which. Uh, which disturb public tranquility. I think that is also a wrong interpretation, which which cannot be allowed to sustain law. So they are also at fault fault in in, in that regard. Yeah, and I think today, uh, so just was we were following the proceedings also today. The chief justice also asked the AG, who is the government counsel, saying that you know why have you extracted the judgment and why have you written headscarf? Because at one level you are saying this is innocuous in nature, you know it's just neutral. Then he's like, why have you written, why have you reproduced these judgments? And the AG just said, you know, it could have been drafted better. So that's not a response, right? <laughs> that's that's not a response. So, and the second thing is because what we're discussing, if it is, if it applies to all religions, then it's even worse at some level, because then it just says that, you know, no religious symbol can be worn. And that also at some level contradicts everything that the constitution guarantees, right? Because, because if the test is of indirect discrimination, think that now. All minorities who actually have to bear certain religious symbols are being impacted. So was, they really believe that this is essential to the religion. So for example, turbans are a religious symbol at the end of the day, so they can be banned, which is also not correct, right? This nobody is saying that it should be banned. It, everybody should be allowed to bear the religious symbols. That's the that's the real argument that's being trying to be developed. But somehow it's being said that you know it's it's okay. Like it's just the hijab, but it's not. It's everything in in reality. And I think that's also a huge problem. And I think another thing I was thinking that I what I personally feel why this ERP argument was taken first was because uh, I'm sorry, because at some level it's easier to convince judges that you know my religion triumphs the school or the community as a whole, and individual right we it gets it's great to argue and we want that that, that individual right to develop. But sometimes judges don't buy it. Judges just feel that it's easier to go to the religion route. I think that's also why this argument could have been taken. But we, we are not sure why the strategy was adopted. Like optically for the court, it's easier to justify striking down state regulation on the basis that an entire religious practice is against yeah. it. As opposed to saying that this one individual's belief um you know uh contravenes the, the state regulation so it's just uh it it looks better for the judges yeah, it well. looks better it looks better for the public and the media but we want that individual rights and a right weight but see that's what that's what we keep on discussing this podcast that we want something from the courts but a lot of times the court don't want to give it <laughs> yeah um i guess that Maybe we can spend the last couple of minutes talking a little bit about the fact that this case was live streamed and it's probably one of the first high profile constitutional cases in India to be live streamed. Um, so as somebody who's been like involved with the case, tracking it closely, um, could you tell us like uh, whether one you think it's impacted the arguments, both in terms of the judge's behavior and the lawyer's behavior and to anything else that you have noticed 
being involved in a case that's being live streamed that's different from say other cases right so in terms of the judicial behavior i think i'm somewhat somewhat of uh, having limitations to to speak about that being personally involved with the case uh, but yeah. of course live streaming live streaming in general has been quite revolutionary i think especially i think in constitutional cases of of this nature uh, it's great that the the live streaming proceedings are going on and people are able to watch it you know at, at their liberty at whenever whenever they want and it's exciting to see both both students of constitutional law or, or law students from different colleges and academics and teachers and everybody is able to sort of have you know look at what is actually happening in constitutional courts and i mean there is never never an argument i think against live streaming i i, I fail to understand why the supreme court and the other high courts are in fact de delaying the the process of live streaming although the supreme court has held already in in the rajesh's uh, case that uh, court proceedings must be uh, telecast telecast live so that is of course a welcome step and that's been that's been quite promising and and i think a, a really great uh, example for other high courts and of course the supreme court to emulate but uh, so i so i have so one contrary opinion to life like even though i believe live streaming should be there but one contrary opinion usually is that courts while a argument is going on a lot of things happen that are not necessarily required for people to be seen right because lawyers sometimes know, know knows much more the context of things happening and a lot of things that are actually should not be said publicly or you should be called out for or said in court but they are given a go by because a that doesn't impact the case b the lawyers don't want to call out these things because they want to win the case so they don't believe that we should get into these unnecessary questions of what is right what is wrong if it's not impacting the case but once it's being live streamed a lot of things are in the open so sometimes i feel it also like obviously it impacts the lawyers and the judges because now everybody wants to be on the live stream right that's that's a great and it's it's human nature it's not like somebody is wrong or like correct but that's how humans work everybody wants to be on it and they want to look right in front of the public because now everybody is watching so i think 17000 people roughly watched this live stream and that's a massive number to have i think that's also a huge thing yeah Yeah. yeah that is true i mean of course there are a lot of things like in, in confidential cases of course there are reasons as to why certain thing certain proceedings should not be live streamed in, in case of sexual assault or in cases where very sensitive information is is being uh, uh, told or when the examination of the witnesses happen or of the victim happens in in sensitive cases of course there are good reasons why we should not allow live streaming that that directly has impact on the privacy and and dignity of the individuals who are involved but i think that as far as the karnataka case is concerned it's it's a constitutional yeah. case and there is much less to do with uh you know privileged conversations between the between the clients and the and the lawyers it is much uh, less to do with sensitive information of course of course it it's uh, somewhat impactful of what strategy lawyers want to adopt in cases and of course it's being uh, seen by everyone but i think that sort of a necessary evil that we have to put up with because we we you know we have to choose one of one of the two and yeah, i think true. it's it's better to opt for transparency yeah. when yeah, yeah. when we have that i think one more thing is that the government keeps on requesting that should not be live streamed i think initially they said that elections are going on should not be live streamed and then the judges with the opinion how does it matter like the elections are happening in some other state right. who are you to object it and then today also before the argument started the ag requested that the live streaming should be stopped so that tells you that who doesn't want live streaming to be there and that's also But very i also no i think i think there was also one of the petitioners council who argued that the the live streaming should be stopped if i remember correctly so i think both sides are a little bit nervous of of this entire issue 
yeah, I, I think on this the the uh, opinion is split. I think some some people among the petitioners do think it it should be and and it's uh, vice versa as well. So yeah. Yeah. One one last thing I wanted to ask you is um, a lot of non-lawyers who who aren't or who have never been inside courts, um, like when they watched it, they I got a couple of texts saying that is it always the case that it's all men who are arguing um, these big constitutional cases and watching the live stream it you can't help but notice yeah. um, that there is a significant paucity of gender equality across both the bar and the bench there so i was there wondering are two women involved in this case one is with us and one's the judge so that's it you can like of who are arguing there would be like associates and like people who are assisting but they don't you don't see them so they are like the faceless people of the court but that's it and that's a huge problem i think that's what was when we discussed that you know who like what's happening in this case yeah so i was just wondering if whether you like whether and based on your experience if that's reflective of the general trend in constitutional cases and other litigation in india and what your thoughts were on it I mean, of course, there's a, there's a huge problem of representation, and I think a lot of women lawyers have have spoken about it whenever they were allowed to speak about it. <laughs> so, I mean, it it is true that the, the space, the litigation space, is very very uh, cent centered on on men, and and the, there are of course problems that that women face both inside and outside court. So the, the idea is to increase, uh, I mean, make uh, the court and and generally workplace a safer place for women and. Uh, sort of encourage and, and take steps to empower women in the respective ways, in whichever way the system can can of course steer that that development. And it, it's true that I mean, even when we look at the the judge strength, generally speaking, in in uh, the Supreme Court or or high courts across the country, we see that it's a very very few women who actually get to be part of the bench. And even among senior lawyers, or even among lawyers generally speaking, who people who actually get to argue. There is a very very low proportion of of women, so that's that's indeed a problem that that we need systemic solutions for. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that's a wrap from my end. Unless yeah. Rishabh, you have anything else? Tulsi, you have anything else you'd like to add? No, not, not, I think in particular there are of course like a couple of other issues uh, with the with the hijab ban ban uh, as well. But I I don't know if we have uh, time to uh, get to that. So of course. Issues of freedom of expression. There are, of course, freedom of association, and we also need to think about what good is being denied to the Muslim women on account of the hijab ban. We need to think about how important is education as a cultural capital, and and what exactly is taken away from them. I think that that's quite uh, important uh, for us to look at. So there are these issues, but uh, perhaps we can talk about that another time. Yeah, so I think we've we've decided on the next episode also. <laughs> we can have you back on to do a, a deep dive into the secondary arguments okay. now. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank so much for joining us.